0: Thank you.
1: listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I am super excited about this episode. I just finished reading The Devil in the White City. It is a fantastic book that covers the amazing story of how the World's Fair in Chicago was built. It is wild how some of that was put together. As a matter of fact, the same man who was in charge of building Central Park was in charge of the landscape of Jackson Park where the World's Fair was placed. For that story alone the book was worth the read, but it also follows the story of the first urban serial killer in America. But the ties to Ohio are just as fascinating when the devil in the white city became the devil in the queen city. So let's throw another a log on the fire campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
0: Hi, everybody. If you are a longtime true crime fan, I'm betting that at some point you immersed yourself in the story of H.H. Holmes. He's that serial killer who operated a hotel during the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. They called it the Murder Castle because, legend has it, he would lure in victims to torture and kill them and was suspected of dozens of murders. Well, there is a tiny chapter in the story of H.H. Holmes that takes place in Ohio. It's a small but significant part that was recounted in the 2003 book called The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. While Holmes spent just two days in Cincinnati, what a detective found there marked the beginning of the end of Holmes' reign of terror, the moment where authorities were able to snag the loose thread and start unraveling the veil of this elusive monster. Let me start with a little background on Holmes before we go to Cincinnati. Holmes wasn't his real name, by the way. He was born Herman Webster Mudgett in New Hampshire, one of five siblings in a farming family of devout Methodists. At the age of 17, Holmes married Clara Loverling. They had a son, and he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery graduating in 1884 and becoming a doctor. While he was enrolled, he worked in an anatomy lab where he and the instructor added grave robbing to his list of extra credits. They would slip into area cemeteries and pull fresh bodies from their caskets in order to supply the school with cadavers for dissecting. Holmes could be charming when he needed to be, but he had a mean streak. He beat his wife, and she eventually left him and moved back to New Hampshire. But the first time Holmes really raised eyebrows was when he moved to New York and was seen in the company of a little boy who later disappeared. No investigation took place, and Holmes quickly left town but he left behind rumors and lots of whispering. Holmes had a succession of jobs in hospitals and drugstores, never staying anywhere for long and often leaving under a cloud of suspicion. That's when he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes, hoping to avoid being followed by police or creditors to his next destination, Chicago. There, Holmes took a second wife, Murda Belknap, before divorcing his first wife. He had a second child, a daughter. And five years after that, he married Georgiana Yoke in Denver, while still married to both Clara and Murda. Now there is a lot of legend about Holmes' time in Chicago, much of it sensationalized. He bought a drugstore and started adding on to the building. He grew it into a second-story mixed-use building, and then, with the World's Fair coming to town, added a third story with hotel rooms. I won't get into this part very much. There are books, documentaries, and movies that have been done about this chapter in his life, and it's not our Ohio connection. The short version is that later after Holmes's long criminal career came to light, a yellow press would allege he had lured strangers into his hotel with its maze-like layout and hidden rooms and slaughtered them. The truth is, there's no evidence he actually did that. That didn't mean he wasn't a killer. Because by the time Holmes left Chicago... He was definitely a con man, a swindler, a check forger, a bigamist, a horse thief, and yeah, he'd left a string of bodies in his wake across the country, but they were people that he knew, including three mistresses, the child of one of his mistresses, and the sister of another. Now, let's jump to June of 1895. Authorities don't know any of that. H.H. H. Holmes is sitting in a Philadelphia prison, but not for murder. All that authorities suspected of him was that he had turned in a fraudulent insurance claim. The Fidelity Mutual Life Association believed Holmes had faked the death of a policyholder, Benjamin Peitzel. Peitzel had run Holmes Hotel in Chicago during the World's Fair, a time during which Holmes had taken out a $10,000 life insurance policy on Peitzel from Fidelity's Chicago office. In Philadelphia, where Holmes and Peitzel had moved to carry out some new con games, Holmes had collected on the policy, producing a burned cadaver that he identified as Peitzel. After paying him off, Fidelity Mutual had second thoughts and hired the Pinkerton National Detective Agency to find Holmes. Agents were able to track him down and arrest him in Boston and extradited him to Philadelphia. And that's where he was. In jail, case closed. Or was it? Philadelphia detectives couldn't find Peitzel and began to wonder if Holmes had actually killed him in order to collect the money. But more disturbingly, Peitzel wasn't the only one missing. Three of Peitzel's five children had also disappeared where were they? Detective Frank Geyer, a Pinkerton detective with 20 years of experience, was assigned to find the children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard. Geyer started by interviewing Holmes in his cell, and Holmes insisted the last time he'd seen the children, they were with an old secretary of his, Minnie Williams, a woman who was taking them to their father's hideout, wherever that may be. Geyer later described his interview with Holmes, saying the man was smooth and glib. Geyer wrote, Holmes is greatly given to lying with a sort of florid ornamentation, and all of his stories are decorated with flamboyant details, intended by him to strengthen the plausibility of his statements. Well, Holmes did not want to face a murder charge, so it served him to admit that Peitzel's death was indeed a hoax. He told Geyer how they'd done it. Holmes said he obtained a cadaver from a funeral home that was located right behind a house that he had rented for the fraud. He placed the cadaver on the second floor, poured solvent on the upper body, and set it on fire. The intent was to make it look like Peitzel had died in an accidental explosion. By the time the body was discovered, the facial features were unrecognizable, and Holmes hoped the coroner would accept his confirmation that the body was indeed his partner. However, the coroner really wanted someone from Peitzel's family to come and identify the body. The wife of the deceased, Carrie Peitzel, was in St. Louis, and she was too sick to travel. So Carrie sent her 15-year-old daughter Alice to Philadelphia. The coroner draped the body of the burned victim so that all she would have to look at were his teeth and Alice identified those teeth as her father's. That's why Fidelity paid the death benefit. Holmes took Alice back to her home in St. Louis, where he persuaded Carrie that her husband was in a safe place, but desperate to see his children he persuaded her to let him take Alice, 11-year-old Nellie, and 8-year-old Howard to go see him. And so the four of them, H.H. Holmes and the three children, embarked on a strange and very sad journey. Here is where Detective Geyer no longer had to rely on anything Holmes said because investigators had found a cache of letters that Holmes kept in a tin box that he had marked Property of H.H. Holmes. The letters had been written by the children to their mother, letters they clearly thought had been posted by Holmes, but had never left his possession. The letters revealed that, at first, Alice found the trip to be an adventure. In a letter to her mother on September twentieth eighteen ninety four, she wrote, I wish you could see all we've seen. When her mother didn't write back, Alice wrote, Have you gotten four letters from me besides this? Are you sick in bed or are you up? I wish I could hear from you. Instead of leaving Carrie, wondering why she wasn't hearing from her children, Holmes wrote to her instead. He told her husband Ben had gone to London, England, and that their mutual friend, Minnie Williams, had taken the kids overseas to see him. When Philadelphia investigators learned this, they reached out to Scotland Yard and asked them to take a look around. But the yard could find no trace of Ben Peitzel Minnie Williams, or the three children. By that time, it had been half a year since anyone had seen the kids, and investigators were beginning to believe they would never find them. That's when the Philadelphia District Attorney asked Pinkerton agent Frank Geyer to make it his mission to find those kids. There were lots of clues in those letters. And so Geyer packed his bag and set out the evening of June the 26th, 1895. He boarded a train filled with cigar smoke and slept in jagged stretches through 90-degree heat as they chugged through the Pennsylvania countryside, crossing over into Ohio. The next night, around 7.30 p.m., The train arrived at the first place that Holmes and the three children stopped at after leaving their St. Louis home. Geyer stepped out of the stagnant train car and into the Queen City, Cincinnati.
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: Since it was nighttime, he checked into the Palace Hotel, one of the nicest in the city, and allowed himself a good night's sleep. He went to Cincinnati Police headquarters bright and early the next day to brief the police chief on his mission. Geyer was assigned a local detective, John Schnooks, to help him. Geyer knew Schnooks. They were old friends, actually. Schnooks was a well known police detective with dozens of newspaper stories touting his crime fighting prowess. Geyer's intent was to trace the footsteps of the children as best as he could, using clues in those undelivered letters. They spoke of visiting the Cincinnati Zoo, but they didn't mention the name of where they stayed. And so Geyer and Schnook made a list of every hotel in Cincinnati located near a railroad station. There were dozens of them. They figured the foursome wouldn't have traveled far from their main source of transportation. Then, the pair set out on foot to visit each and every one, sifting through registration books for some sign that Holmes and the children had been there. Geyer knew Holmes would have used an alias. He always did. But they did have photographs of both Holmes and the three children. Then again, it had been months since they were in Cincinnati. What were the chances anyone would recall them? Apparently, the good folks of Cincinnati had very good memories. On Central Avenue, the detectives came to a small, inexpensive hotel called the Atlantic House, where beds went for 15 cents a night. For the upteenth time, they asked to look at the registration book. They flipped the log to Friday, September 28, 1894. That was the day Holmes had picked up the children in St. Louis. And Geyer traced his finger down the list of names, reaching one Alex E. Cook, traveling with three children. It was Holmes, Geyer had no doubt Holmes had used that alias before. He also had seen enough of Holmes' handwriting to recognize the signature. The cook party stayed at the Atlantic House just one night, but Guyer knew from the children's letters they had spent two nights in Cincinnati. He had no way of knowing why they moved the next day, but that meant they had to get back to canvassing more hotels. At 6th and Vine, they stepped into a hotel called The Bristol, a hotel that had been built 60 years earlier as the main stop for stage coaches coming to Cincinnati. And there, on the page for Saturday, September 29, they found A.E. Cook checking in with three children. The clerk there even recognized their photos. The foursome checked out the next day, and Geyer knew his timeline had them moving on to Indianapolis. But Geyer wasn't quite done with Cincinnati. He had a hunch. Why were they in Cincinnati at all? Geyer knew Holmes often rented houses in the cities he traveled to for a variety of reasons, usually to play some part in a con or a crime. So he and Detective Schnooks went to Cincinnati's real estate agents and began flashing the photos of homes and the kids. And son of a gun, if he didn't find someone who recognized them. J.C. Thomas, who had an office on East 3rd Street, remembered renting a house to the man in the photo. The house was at 305 Poplar Street an older neighborhood filled with row houses and a mix of industrial grit and commercial activity and plenty of saloons. The renter had given his name as A.C. Hayes. This Hayes guy gave the real estate agent a substantial advance payment. But he only ended up keeping the house for two days. He didn't know why. Geyer and Schnooks went to Poplar Street, and they knocked on the door of a neighbor. They found Henrietta Hill, who couldn't help but remember the strange encounter that she had had with the very brief tenants next door. She said it was Saturday, September 29, and a furniture wagon stopped in front of the house. She watched a man and a boy descend from the wagon. What was odd, she said, was there was no furniture in the wagon, just a huge iron stove that was way too big for a private home. Henrietta mentioned it to her neighbors, and they agreed that was weird. The very next day, the man knocked on her front door, said he wasn't going to be staying after all and told her she could have the stove if she wanted it. Then he disappeared. Detective Geyer had a theory about this encounter, that whatever Holmes' plans were, he had originally intended to spend some time in Cincinnati, renting the house, but then finding his neighbors a little excessively curious. What the larger-than-life iron stove was for, he could only imagine, or rather, maybe didn't want to imagine. Later, Detective Geyer wrote, I was not able to appreciate the intense significance of the renting of the Poplar Street house and the delivery of a stove of such immense size but I had taken firm hold of the end of the string that would lead to the children. The next day, Detective Geyer caught a train to Indianapolis. Geyer knew where to go in Indianapolis, Nellie's letter to her mom had mentioned the Hotel English, and sure enough, the register showed Holmes registering with the name Canning, the maiden name of the children's mother. But he'd only been there a night, and Geyer knew the children had stayed in town for a full week. So he checked every hotel until he found another one called the Circle Park. Now, This was getting really strange because the entry he found wasn't for Holmes and three children. It was for Mrs. Georgia Howard, the alias Holmes used for his wife, Georgiana Yoke. Again, it had been months since they'd been there, but the hotel clerk recognized photos of Holmes and his wife, but not the children. As a matter of fact... The clerk had spoken with the wife quite a lot over the four days that she was there. She was often left alone by her husband, and it was clear to her that they had no children and traveled alone. This detective, Geyer, was so dogged in his pursuit and really quite imaginative. When a search of existing hotels failed to turn up where the three children were staying. He learned there had been another hotel that had closed recently. Geyer tracked down the old clerk and, as luck would have it, the clerk remembered them clearly. He said the children were often crying and were homesick for their mother, a story that Geyer was able to confirm with a former chambermaid from the hotel. The maid said the man had told her the boy was being bad, very bad, and he was trying to find an institution to put him in. Geyer's heart was heavy as he read these undelivered letters that the children wrote of their time in Indianapolis. In one letter, Nellie told her mother the trip had become wearisome. She said it was raining out, it was cold, She was trying to pass the day reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. Nellie wrote, I expect this Sunday will pass away slower than I don't know what. Why don't you write to me? I have not got a letter from you since I have been away, and it will be three weeks day after tomorrow. (laughs) ¶¶ Geyer left Indianapolis, continuing to track the children's movements. He went to Chicago, then to Detroit, the city where Alice penned the last of the letters that had been saved in that tin box. This letter was addressed to her grandparents, clearly hoping that since her mother wasn't responding to her, maybe they would. In the saddest letter of all, Alice said she and Nellie both had colds and only thin jackets to wear. They were freezing all the time. She asked her grandparents to let her mom know they needed winter coats. They wrote that they were stuck in their hotel rooms all day with nothing to do and so terribly homesick. And then this chilling remark. Howard is not with us now, Alice wrote. Alice said she missed her baby brother, Wharton, who had remained at home with her mother. She wrote, I suppose Wharton walks by this time, don't he? I would like to have him here. He would pass away the time a good deal. Incredibly, when Alice wrote those words, her mother, baby Wharton, and another sibling were just three blocks away. Detective Geyer couldn't imagine what Holmes was up to, but as it turned out, he had brought Carrie Peitzel and the other two children from St. Louis to Detroit and into the Geiss Hotel. He had also moved his wife, Georgiana Yoke, to Detroit as well in another hotel. He was now moving three different parties of travelers from place to place, none of them aware of the other. Later, Carrie Peitzel would tell police she was allowing herself to be moved around by Holmes because he kept promising to reunite her with her children. When Alice had pined for her mother and baby brother, they were a ten-minute walk from her and had been so For five days. Detective Geyer had run out of letters now, but he had one more stop to make. Here's the thing I haven't told you yet. Geyer was not exactly on this journey alone. The entire country knew those three children were missing, and they were following his exploits. Geyer was being hailed as America's Sherlock Holmes and reports were showing up in newspapers both large and small. That's how he caught the attention of a man who called to say he had rented the house next to his in Toronto, Canada to a man who looked like the photo of Holmes in the newspaper. The house was at 16 St. Vincent Street. And it had been in October of 1894. He remembered the man and the two girls because they arrived with very little furniture, just one mattress, an old bed, and a very large trunk. During their stay, the man showed up on the neighbor's doorstep and asked to borrow his shovel, saying he wanted to dig a hole for storing potatoes in the basement. The man returned the shovel the next day, left with his big trunk, and never came back. Hearing these details, Detective Geyer went to the Toronto home, which looked like a gingerbread house from a fairy tale located on a street with elegant homes. And there, in the basement, a crew with shovels found the girls. They'd been buried, nude, lying side by side. Investigators knew where that trunk was that Holmes had been carting around, and they looked it over closely now. It had a hole drilled through one side with a makeshift patch. Geyer theorized he had locked the girls in the oversight trunk and filled it with gas from a lamp valve until the girls were dead. The discovery of the girl's remains were reported throughout the United States and Canada on July the 16th, 1895. But where was little Howard? Later, authorities would learn Holmes had been in Indianapolis longer than they had thought, and he had rented a little cottage that was now in charred ruins. There, in the chimney, they found teeth and pieces of bone, and while there was no way to prove it, given the circumstances, they were pretty sure it was Howard. In the end, Holmes was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for just one murder, that of his partner, Benjamin Peitzel. For that, he was hanged on May seventh, 1896, at the Philadelphia County Prison. Just what Holmes did in his life is really still a mystery. Following his conviction, he confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some of the people he named turned out to still be alive. He was paid $7,500 By the Hearst newspapers to hear all the gruesome details, but in the end, most of what Holmes said was found to be nonsense. According to some accounts, Holmes did not leave this world easily. Witnesses said when the gallows trap was sprung, his neck didn't break. Instead, he strangled to death slowly twitching for 15 minutes. His body was buried in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery in the Philadelphia suburb of Yeadon. In 2017, amid allegations that Holmes had somehow escaped execution, the family asked for his body to be exhumed. Because his coffin had been contained in cement, per his instructions before death because he didn't want somebody robbing his grave the way he used to rob graves his body had not decomposed the way it might have but it was him his body was positively identified by his teeth and then reburied
1: what a fascinating story Paula mentioned about the sensationalization of H.H. H. Holmes and the crimes and what can be proven. However, there is no doubt that H.H. was an evil man who committed multiple murders. Having read The Devil in the White City, the sensationalization really can be boiled down to, in just my opinion, was a time when women were starting to go out and live on their own, becoming career women in Chicago. This was a time when women left farms and families to seek out independence. I'm sure this was brought up to other women as a warning. And what better way to sensationalize the HH crimes to scare them into not seeking out their own independence? Of course, this is just my opinion, but it really stuck out in the book as definitely a transitional time in women's history. There definitely was some very interesting cases of women associated with Holmes that he probably did kill. However, the crimes that he killed hundreds of people just cannot be proven. Although hundreds of people did come up missing during the World's Fair in Chicago, it would be impossible to link H.H. to any of those. H.H. did give us some fantastic quotes that are very, very chilling. I was born with the devil in me, Holmes wrote. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me ever since. All in all, The Devil in the White City is a fantastic book that does not sensationalize too much as they stick what most likely happened. 60% of the book has more to do with the World's Fair. So definitely check it out. Your local library probably has it. Uh, definitely online with the library as well. It probably get it in an audiobook form too. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this case and all of our past cases, head on over to to ohio mysteries.com and also check out killer there you will find more podcasts just like ours we are proud to be part of the evergreen podcast network step into the world of power loyalty